you like to say, Tommy? One, two, three. Go, Tommy! Grief can't be all negative and sad. Hello, everyone. Welcome to episode five of the Good Days, Bad Days podcast. I am Rachel Vani, your host. And in this episode, we will be talking with Joy Abrams. Joy is an incredible and inspiring person, and I am so grateful to know her. In this episode, we will be talking about her addiction to alcohol, her rainbow baby, Patrick, and the traumatic birth experience that she had, as well as how she has just completely transformed her life into one of purpose and helping others. And the story is so inspirational. I hope that you guys enjoy. Hi, Joy. Thank you so much for being on the podcast. No problem. Thanks for having me. Of course. So before we jump into uh, the grief kind of portion of things, uh, why don't you give a little introduction about who you are? (laughs) Um, My name is Joy Abrams. I went to law school with Rachel. We had a few classes together. We weren't super close, but I know that we did socialize outside of school a couple of times because we shared a mutual friend, but we were friends on social media, and I feel that I've actually gotten a lot closer with Rachel since law school um, because I've had experiences with um, a child that was born premature and NICU experiences, and Rachel has been just an amazing person, resource to guide me through all that stuff when I was extremely overwhelmed. Oh, thank you. Um, yeah, you know, it was, it's my pleasure to be a, a part of your life and, and I'm so happy that I could be there for you in that way. Cause I know going through that is really scary. Let's talk about specifically, let's talk about like law school. Let's go to, to back in the day. What was law school like? And just to kind of frame it in the way you started, is that where you started kind of developing a addiction or you kind of noticed that you were becoming dependent on alcohol? I started drinking when I was around 18 years old. Actually related to grief um, as well was that the thing that really triggered me, I I was raised in a religion in which we were taught not to drink. And so it was always never an option. But when I was 18, uh, a classmate of mine died in a car accident on his way to graduation. And that was really hard. Um, and it made me just kind of say, you know what, I'm going to try drinking. And from the moment I touched alcohol, um, I I think anyone watching me touch alcohol would know that I had a problem. I lived in denial for a very, very, very long time. And definitely throughout law school, it just got progressively worse. Yeah, I think the law school uh, environment, it's so easy to fall into that too. If you are in that 
mindset where you're already dependent on it as a coping mechanism, I could totally see law school just perpetuates that with the stressful environment and then everyone goes out and tries to burn off steam and drink. So I totally understand how that could be, even if you were maybe just a little bit, oh, well, I probably drink to cope a little bit too much. That could really send you over the edge. Yeah. And if you want, if you're already having problems with drinking, all you have to do is hang out with some lawyers or soon to be lawyers and you'll feel validated in your drinking. Like, oh, I'm not drinking that much. Like, I'm drinking just as much as they are, you know. Because, um, frankly, addiction's just rampant within the legal community. Yeah, it, it definitely is. I think there's more of a, an awareness now uh, and less of a... I don't even know if there was a stigma, honestly. I feel like it was more embraced in the, in the culture. <laughs> like, everyone would kind of be like, yeah, I drink a lot. And that was yep. just kind of embraced in it. Um, after law school, though, did you just find yourself continuing in that pattern? Yes, very much so. Um, I could have passed the bar to save my life. I really was, I felt that since I passed law school somehow, like perpetually drunk, that eh, I could pass the bar drunk. And that's, that was not the case. Um, I wasn't able to pass the bar until I sobered up and realized I had a problem. So talk to me about that first moment when, you know, it's for those who aren't aware, when you take the bar exam, you have to wait forever for results. And you're sitting there at this designated time, refreshing the screen, trying to see if you are on the pass list because they don't give you like a grade. It's either you pass or you don't. Walk me through that. What did you tell yourself when you checked and you had failed? Did you think about the fact that, oh, if I was not drinking, I might've had a shot? I don't know if I was willing to admit that at that point, um, I was devastated. I, it was really hard. I was interning at the public defender's office, and all the other interns had passed, so I was the only one that didn't. So I was feeling, you know, really depressed about it, and all it led to was drinking more, you know, because when you're upset and you have a problem with alcohol, your solution is, you know what, I need more alcohol. When, after that, did you? When was the turning point where you decided enough was enough or you realized, oh, I'm not going to be in denial anymore? This is a problem. Well, I mean, I wouldn't say that it was overnight by any means. It was, there wasn't exactly like a aha moment in which everything changed. It was very much a gradual process for me. But ultimately, the rock bottom point was my second DUI that really set in motion everything that I needed to do and experience in order to realize that I never wanted to drink again. On my second DUI, I remember it was funny because I don't remember it fully because I was somewhat blacked out, which is terrifying that I was driving while blacking out. but I ended up going 
to the police station and I blew a point three three. And um, and I had intentions of going home and drinking more. And so it just really blew my mind that I was that intoxicated. And then I had to go to the hospital instead of going to jail, which was, again, um, kind of eye-opening. But even with all of that, I wasn't ready at that point to say that I was never going to drink again. I committed to taking a break. Uh, my goal was to stay sober for five years because that was what was required of me with what I entered into with courts to get my DUI dismissed. But in my sick alcoholic mind, um, I had, had it down that October 25th, 2018, that's when my DUI gets dismissed and I can start drinking again. And it wasn't until the time that really like sticks out to me when I really started realizing how bad my alcoholism was, was I got connected with a sponsor in AA and she had me write down every instance that I could remember that um, I drank and I had to write down how much I intended to drink, how much I actually drank and what happened. And I just had pages and pages of just horrible experiences. And it, it was kind of at that moment, that I was like, holy cow, like, I'm an alcoholic. Yeah, is that when you, so, when you kind of saw it all in front of you, it just kind of, the, was it just overwhelming? It was very overwhelming. And um, I'm not... I'm not a good person when I drink, you know, um, I cross boundaries that I never think that I would ever cross, you know, and my morals go out the window. I'm not somebody that I'm not somebody that advocates like I want to put people's lives in danger, you know, but mm -hmm. when I drink, it's not that I get behind the wheel and I intend like, that's not the intention when I get behind the wheel, but I also don't have the mindset to think through decisions and what could possibly happen. Mm -hmm. So what did you do after you wrote all these things down and you realized, oh, wow, I don't want to be that person anymore? Like, what, what did you go do to start that transformation? Well, I enrolled in a treatment program. My treatment program was two years long. Um, I was going to AA regularly and working with a sponsor, um, just doing everything that I could to break free of the chains because it's not, it's not an easy break. It's not, people like to treat addiction as if you can just wake up and say, I'm not going to do that anymore. And if it was that simple we wouldn't have the problems that we have in society. It's so hard to get rid of your crutch that you've been utilizing for years and to feel feelings. I cried for the first 60 days of my sobriety every day because I was not used to feeling. So for those who don't understand addiction, 
what, if you could put it into words, what does it feel like? I know that's a hard it's, question. <laughs> it is hard. It's hard to imagine having an itch like on your body and then someone's like, no, you can't scratch it. It's going to, it just drives you crazy. Like, cause that's your, your reaction is I need to scratch that itch. Like, and that's what addiction is like. Your brain is telling you, I need to drink, I need to use. I never had a problem with drugs, but I know that it's similar to alcoholism. Um, yeah, but it's like, I need this now. And there's no, it's just the knee jerk. Okay, let's go get it. And you will do anything in your power to go get it. When you were going through that treatment program, what were some things that you found really helpful and what was something that you found that really wasn't helpful? I needed to do things slowly in terms of um, in terms of the transition, if you will. So when I first stopped drinking, my caffeine intake went up significantly because I needed at that moment, I was kind of in survival mode and I needed something to kind of, you know, itch that, uh, scratch that itch. I'm sorry. Oh, okay. um, so it was baby steps. It was, I was drinking two to three energy drinks a day when I first got sober. And then slowly, once getting used to being sober and feeling, I was able to kick off those unhealthy habits. Um, so for me, it's not expecting perfection and everything all at once. And I think a lot of people struggling have issues with that. I have a friend who's trying to stop drinking and, and as a result, she's eating junk food, you know, and she's shaming herself for eating junk food. And it's like, no, that's not, that's not the way it works. Like you need to give yourself some leeway to let some other not ideal habits, you know, come in, but that are much better than the underlying addiction. So that's what worked for me was allowing myself to, you know, engage in other, what do I want to say? Like coping. Coping mechanisms. They may yeah. not have been the healthiest, but you were allowing yourself, giving yourself a little bit of leeway to allow, well, it's not drinking. Exactly. Did you replace those, like that uh, energy drink habit with something else now? What is it? I now drink coffee a lot. Um, <laughs> I actually attribute AA for my coffee addiction. So I, I drink a few cups of coffee a day, but it's still not, it's not anything compared to how I was when I first got sober. But yeah, I, I'm not giving up coffee. No one gives coffee. Yeah. No, I would I would never give coffee up in a million years. <laughs> I would die. <laughs> right. No, that's like, how I feel too. I live off coffee. Um Yeah. So was there anything that you had during your uh treatment program that maybe was part of the program and you felt like it just didn't fit with you or it just wasn't helpful? I think sobriety is a very personal thing. I think 
that everybody has their own ways that work for them. There's a lot of friends that I have in AA that swear that if they don't go to a meeting every week that they're going to relapse. I went to meetings weekly for the first two years of sobriety. I don't go to meetings weekly now. I'm extremely busy with my job and my toddler. A lot of people will say that in order to maintain your sobriety that you have to go to AA weekly. And I don't find that for myself to be true. I think some people, they need that. And I think that if if you do need that, that you should be going. Um, but I don't think sobriety is a one-size-fit-all kind of thing. I think that you need to find what works for you. So for me personally, when I'm struggling, I find myself journaling or meditating. I find that extremely helpful when I'm going through a difficult time. Don't get me wrong, if I need a meeting, I know where to go and I do have friends in AA. But I think it's a mistake for people to try to act like sobriety is a shoe and that, you know, this is the shoe that fits everybody that suffers from addiction. I think it's a very personal journey and people need to find what works for them in terms of maintaining their sobriety. Let's talk about what happened since you've been sober. You have accomplished a lot in the last couple of years and I'm so happy. I'm like smiling ear to ear saying it because, so why don't you tell people a little bit about life being sober and how you have progressed since then? Well, life has gotten so much better since I've gotten sober. I, it's funny because when I first got sober, I hated being sober. I never thought that I'd be able to be happy sober. I was extremely bitter and angry and depressed and every other negative emotion (laughs) that exists out there. But since I've gotten sober, I went and I passed the bar up in Alaska um, and then was able to transfer my bar license down to Washington. So I'm now a licensed attorney in two states. I have my dream job working as a public defender in Spokane County. So I'm able to relate a lot to my clients that are struggling with addiction, because most of my clients are those that are struggling with addiction. And I think them hearing that, yeah, no, I've been there. I've been to jail due to addiction. Helps me develop a rapport. I'm married now. I own a home. And I have the sweetest little three, almost four-year-old that runs around and is crazy. Oh my gosh. How is he almost four already? I have no idea. He needs to slow down a little bit. (laughs) I'm not ready for it. (laughs) Sticking with the addiction portion, um, and I really want to talk about your son, Patrick, too, and and your journey um, that you've been on with him. But if you had someone who was past joy, like they were, they're in in the same boat that you were um, after your second DUI what would you say to them as advice for moving forward? Well, the first thing that I would say is that it's going to be okay. After my second DUI, I was extremely suicidal. I didn't think that 
I could go on. I didn't really want to go on, frankly, because um, I, I couldn't imagine, like I said, I couldn't imagine being happy sober, but then drinking's not working either. So what do I do? And it's interesting because I'll read some of the things I wrote in early sobriety, and it's very similar to that. of just like, I, I don't want to be existing because I can't drink, but when I drink, terrible things happen. Um, so first thing, it's going to be okay. And the things that you can accomplish once you get sobriety under your belt will just blow your mind. You will not be able to imagine the amazing life that you can build in sobriety. So that's number one. Number two is start going to AA, reach out. Even if you can't go to a meeting, I, in early sobriety, I got on Reddit and there's a stop drinking um, forum there. If you're too embarrassed to go to a meeting, just get on there and post. And you'll find some amazing support. It's really important, in my opinion, to, to connect with other people in recovery that know what you're going through. Because a normal, normal quote unquote, um, <laughs> person isn't going to understand, you know, what, where you're at. They're not going to be able to understand that even when you're at rock bottom that you still want to drink it, because it doesn't make any sense. But that's what addiction is like is when, <laughs> when you're going through this stuff, you, you don't want to go through it. You're trying to numb it. So that, those are, I think the most important things is getting some support, getting some people that you can contact and talk to about how you're feeling um, and really know that it's going to be okay. I know it doesn't feel like it is going to be okay, but I can attest to the fact it's going to be okay. That's awesome. Great advice. And on the side of someone who is maybe has a loved one or a significant other, who maybe they are in a place of denial. And I know that when it comes to addiction, it is so difficult to watch someone uh, go through that and not being able to help them. What advice would you give to someone on addressing addiction with someone who maybe isn't quite there yet and, and wants to change, but how how would you uh what advice would you give to someone who is trying to support them and and getting them help i think that's a really hard aspect of addiction because unfortunately you know there's nothing you can do to get someone to wake up i can't tell you how many people talk to me about my drinking prior to me finding it to be a problem like they would come to me and you know, express their concerns, but I was in denial and I didn't want to stop drinking. So um, the person has to want sobriety and it's really hard to get there until they hit their rock bottom. Um, I think my advice would be to not give up on them, but also don't allow yourself to continually be caught in their cycle of abuse that addiction causes. Just because they're suffering doesn't mean you have to put yourself 
in a situation where you're subjected to their illness. Um, I think the, I think bottom lines are good. I think telling somebody, you know, like, I love you, but I can't, I can't support this essentially. Um, Like setting, setting appropriate boundaries, but letting them know that you love them and that you're there for them, but just within these specific boundaries. Exactly. So that would be my advice. I, I don't think that you're not going to be able to change them on your own. That That's their own personal thing. You can encourage them to go to AA. You can encourage them to participate in things that might help them uh, reach the point that they realize that they have a problem. But ultimately, it's not, it's not going to be you that's going to cause the change. It's going to be them realizing that, hey, this isn't working for me, and I don't want to live this way. So jumping to your son, Patrick, um, AKA pizza, which you can kind of let people know about that, that inside joke as well, uh, his, his nickname. But I wanted to address that journey that you've been on because that's, that's a big one. Um, and so why don't you tell everyone a little bit about Patrick? Um, Patrick, aka Pizza, he is my rainbow baby. Um, I actually had two miscarriages prior to getting pregnant with Patrick. When I was pregnant, my friend posted her pregnancy announcement, or no, it was after she gave birth. She just gave birth, and the hospital gave her a coupon for Papa Murphy's, and it said, congratulations on your baby enjoy a free pizza and I just thought it was the most ridiculous thing (laughs) they were giving out these coupons and it made me laugh so hard that I as soon as I saw that I was like that is how I'm announcing my pregnancy is that I'm gonna announce that I'm getting a free pizza so um so I stole a screenshot of that coupon and I posted it and told everyone I'm super excited for my pizza that um supposed to be here in November of 2016. My pregnancy was fine. Everything was going great. And then we went in for ultrasound pictures at gosh, 18 weeks, I want to say. Mm-hmm. And the tech couldn't get all the photos that she wanted. So she and she was a perfectionist, so she said, no, like, I'm not getting the photos I want, so I want you to come back in, like, two weeks, and we'll try again. Well, I'm very grateful that that happened, because as a result of that happening, I came back two weeks later, and suddenly, like, she notices that my cervix is shortened <laughs> a lot more than, um, it should be actually it shouldn't have been shortening at all at that point so that was around 20 weeks I want to say um, that was discovered and so they started trying to give me progesterone to stop it from shortening um, but that wasn't working um, at 25 weeks they 
told me that I was too late for a cerclage, that I was just going to have to have weekly appointments, but they were pretty sure that Patrick was going to be born early. And I had to go on bed rest and do my best not to move, even though there was no proof that was going to keep him from coming early, but their goal was just to keep him in as long as possible. Uh, no matter what we did, it just kept getting shorter. So it was down to one centimeter. Uh, and, and how many weeks were you? I, I was 20, I want to say 27 or 28 weeks when I was down to one centimeter. And the mm -hmm. doctor that I saw said, if you were less than one centimeter, I would um, admit you right now. But since you like meet the one centimeter mark, you can go home, but just don't move. And, um, <laughs> just lay there. Don't. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> bed rest is not fun. You think that, oh, I would love to just lay in a bed all day and watch TV. No. So August 25th of 2016, I went in for my weekly appointment. I was 29 weeks and the doctor said, oh, there's no change, so just keep doing what you're doing. And I was like, okay. So I went back home and laid down. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, like don't I've been move. Doing. Yep. And um, started feeling some pain. And they had told me, if you feel pain, you know, make sure to get to the hospital. But I'm, I'm always, I don't know. I, I have a hard time because I'm always worried that I'm overreacting about stuff. So I'm just like, oh, it's nothing. Like, so I dealt with it for a few hours. I think it started at six or seven o'clock at night. And then it just progressively was getting worse. Um, so around 1 a.m., I woke up my husband and um, I said, I, I think I need to go to the hospital. And he just shoots up into out of bed just to, like in <laughs> the look on his face is just full panic and oh man um i said because like i said i downplay everything <laughs> yeah my yeah. alcoholism this everything um i said don't worry about it like i'll drive myself they're probably just gonna it's probably nothing they'll just give me a shot and send me home like you have to work at like six in the morning don't want you coming with me it's fine so um I got in the car and I drove myself to the ER which was pretty close to our house um and then they took me in and they were like no you're on labor and like we're gonna give you this drugs to try to stop it but ultimately that didn't work and they're like yeah no this baby's coming now and so that must then have been so I, scary. What what did you feel when they said that? Panic, you know, lots of fear. I I had actually been Googling every week from 25 weeks um, on every week. I was Googling chance of survival if baby's born at this gestation. Oh my gosh, which, that must have been stressful. A little bit. <laughs> um, so the good news was is that I knew that babies born at 29 weeks have around a 90% chance of survival. But yeah, that's just, that's not something you're ready to hear. But yeah. 
Right. I mean, I really coming. any any amount. They're like, well, there's only a ten percent chance that they won't survive. That's not comforting as a parent. You want nope. There's no. a hundred percent chance. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, my medical condition. I've googled that. That only affects like one percent of pregnancies. So I'm used. <laughs> I know what it's like to be on the bad side of statistics. You know. Right. And and the me- the medical problem that you're talking about is it this the shortening of the cervix. Yeah, it's called um, incompetent cervix. It can be caused, they don't know. There's a few reasons that they think it can be caused, but it can be due to the shape of your uterus. I actually have um, a heart-shaped uterus. I can't think of the name of that. So that can actually Well, that's adorable. It. Yeah. <laughs> I want a heart-shaped uterus. <laughs> so... That um, also DNCs can cause that, and I've had two DNCs due to my miscarriages, so Mm -hmm. I don't know exactly what causes this, but um, if I have another baby, I'm guaranteed a surplus, weekly appointments, and a C-section due to my condition. Only slightly stressful. Only a little bit. It's fine. (laughs) So he was born at... 30 weeks or 29 and 29 uh, oh gosh okay so what happened after he was born well um so they had to do an emergency c-section due to the fact that he was breech which is just funny to me that you know he only weighed three pounds three ounces but I still had to have a c-section um to deliver him and it was just it was really um scary to say the least they uh because when they pulled him out I expected to hear crying and I didn't hear anything oh gosh yeah so they probably carted him to the NICU pretty quickly too um they didn't cut me open until they had so I need it back up the hospital that I went to doesn't is not prepared to handle early preemies the earliest they could handle, I believe, was 30, 33 weeks, something like that. Okay. So they did not have the ability to take care of him. And so they actually contacted, so this was in Auburn, Washington. Uh, they contacted Tacoma General, which is about I don't know, 15 miles away. And they asked um, if they could take him, and they could. But they brought up uh, an ambulance to that hospital, and they waited to the very last minute to cut me open and get him out to make sure that the team was there ready with an incubator to take him down to Tacoma General. Turns out that he, I found out later, he had to be resuscitated. He wasn't breathing when he came out. Um, And so they had to resuscitate him, and then, I I didn't get to see him at that moment. Um, Tim was able to go over and snap a photo and show him to me. And then they whisked him away, put him in the incubator, and then they brought him into the room. And I got to see him for one to two minutes before uh, in the incubator before they took him away and drove him down to the other hospital. 
So you had to stay in the hospital to recover from your C-section and he was in this other hospital in their higher level NICU, correct? That is correct. I only stayed at the hospital I was at for a day and then they transferred me down to the hospital he was at and I stayed another day there. Okay. And how was recovering from a C-section while also you know, trying to be there for him in the NICU? Honestly, it, my focus was so much on him that my C-section really, I don't even remember it being that bad. I know that C-sections are major surgeries and I know that I've heard the recovery is bad, but that is not in my memory. I remember the first few days being very bad. I remember the first time when I saw him, uh, I I saw him and he looked he looked like he was on death's door. Frankly, um, it was just very traumatic, and I just started crying. And um, you don't realize everything you use your abdominal muscles for until <laughs> they're sliced in half, and then you're doing those things. So. I started crying and then the pain from the C-section was very intense. So that was making me cry more. And it was just a very terrible cycle. Oh God. And yeah. um, and my dad and my husband were like, maybe we shouldn't have had her see the baby. <laughs> like she's not, she's not happy. <laughs> like, right. And it was just, I, I had a really hard time not blaming myself for his, uh, his birth. What what and specifically did you feel guilty about? I felt that my body failed him. And that's, like, logically, that doesn't, that's not fair. Because mm-hmm. I did everything that I, poss- that I could have possibly done to make sure he wasn't born early. But as a mother, I think most mothers <laughs> like to take on blame for things when, um, they negatively affect their children. Oh, of course. So, Cause you're, you're mom, you're supposed to make things better. You're supposed to be able to fix everything. And it's so hard whenever even things that you don't have any control over things happen, you still feel like, Oh, I should have, I should have done things that were impossible. You know, <laughs> like it's, yeah. there's always that feeling. Yeah. And that's, that's how it was, was I just, I felt a hundred percent responsible for his birth and that I couldn't protect him and that that was really hard and I still you know it's almost been four years and I still have moments where I have those irrational thoughts come into my brain and I have to deal with them but the logical side of me does know (laughs) that his birth was not my fault um I did everything I could it's just you know the hand you're dealt. Absolutely. And so did Patrick have any long-term issues from his birth? He was discharged with a feeding tube and we just got his feeding tube out in January of this year. Um, But we had that for a while and I reached out to you multiple times regarding that issue because I was so terrified for him to be discharged with a feeding tube. I didn't think that 
I'd be able to do that. I'm like, I'm a lawyer, not a nurse. I can't do this. <laughs> uh, just, just to, um, for people who don't know, it was a G tube, which is a feeding tube that's surgically uh, implanted in the stomach. So you can hook food that goes directly to the stomach. Um, my daughter had one. And so at this point, we had had a, a feeding tube for, I think, almost like two years. So I had kind of learned all these tips and tricks and hacks, uh, what, whatever. It's amazing how creative people can get with the feeding tube stuff. But um, so me and Joy would often have conversations about uh, the G tube and, and, you know, all of, does this look infected? <laughs> you know, <it's laughs> a common thing. Um, he's still delayed, but he's continually progressing. And I really just don't have any concerns about him anymore. He's still delayed, but I just, he continually is meeting his milestones. So I just know that he's on his own journey and he's going to be fine. Like, it really just comes back to the, it's going to be okay mantra that I think is very helpful when you're going through very stressful, traumatic events. Yeah. Do you have any, any feelings of grief um, or loss around his birth? Like, do you grieve the, the birth experience that you wanted previously? I do. Um, I, I had, I had my life plan, dang it. Um, (laughs) I, I wanted, number one, I wanted maternity photos. I did not get those. Um, Luckily, I got married three weeks before he was born. So I kind of count that as my maternity shot. So um, you got married, you got married on the beach, right? We did. Yeah. So. But I had, I was going to breastfeed him for two years. I wanted a natural quote unquote birth with no epidural, you know, all the crunchy stuff. And yeah, none of that happened. Uh, <laughs> I, he didn't even want to take a bottle in the NICU, which is why we had to get the feeding tube. I never, you know, I never got the typical mom experience of holding your baby and feeding it. I got to hold him while it was pumped through his nose. I had a really hard, he was on the NICU for four months. So I had a really hard time, um, especially towards the end of it, of just being restricted by all the wires. You know, I was envious. I had a lot of friends um, have babies around the same time. And seeing them at home with their babies, holding them, and it being, you know, a typical birth experience, it it was hard for me because that's that's what I wanted. But instead, I'm stuck in a reclining chair with all these wires, and I can't move around with my baby. Um, so I actually remember the first time that it was before his G tube surgery that they unhooked him from everything. And I just got to walk around the hospital room holding him. And it was amazing. Not a typical experience. Yeah, no, definitely. 
What advice would you give to someone who maybe has a friend who has a baby in the NICU? What, what can they do to support that person? I think, again, I think it's going to be a very personal for every, every person. I think just reaching out to them and asking what types of things they need um, will, would be helpful. Um, I also think that just letting them vent about the things they're going through without trying to fix it is helpful as well because a lot of people are well-meaning with the things they say but it's not when you're in the midst of that stuff it's not helpful like hearing that you know god only gives these types of trials to the strongest although well-meaning when you're in the midst of it it's not helpful it's not something that's comforting you you don't want to be the person that God has deemed to be the strongest, you know? You, right. You're like, I want to be a weak person. Yeah. Yeah. Like, I just wanted to be normal. I just wanted to be uh, normal for sure. Yeah. So letting them vent, getting coffee with them. I made some friends with some other NICU moms. So that was nice when after they were discharged and I'm still in there going through stuff they would come to the hospital and just get a coffee with me. Hospital life is so lonely because you get so sick of the food. It's so nice. Like I had a couple friends bring up food and, and just sit with me in the waiting room. And even just someone sitting for, you know, 30 minutes made a huge difference. Yeah. It, it's extremely lonely and it's isolating. It's not, it's not easy by any means. <laughs> No, it isn't. But I think there, I think when you have a good support system, it can make all the difference in getting through those first, not only those first, you know, couple months, especially if they're, um, would he be considered a micro preemie? I don't know what the terminology is. No, he weighed too much and was too late in gestation. Okay. I didn't know what like the terminology, but, but early premature, I mean, I would say that's 29 weeks is, is pretty young. And so when you have a baby that's born that early, you're going to be in the NICU for like months, like you were. And, um, I feel like people are super gung ho to help that first month. And then it's almost like people get help fatigue. (laughs) So it's important to maybe communicate to your support system. Hey, I'm going to need help for a while. And also when I get home, because getting home after the NICU is so overwhelming. It is. It is definitely a transition, especially when you're coming home with carts of medical supplies. <laughs> and it's amazing to me. I don't know about you, but they just are like, okay, bye-bye. Like, <laughs> it was uh-huh. no transition. It wasn't like, I mean, I had a home health nurse that came once a week, but I remember like those first couple of days, I was like, I don't know what's what? It's all on me now? (laughs) No, I totally felt that way. Like, I think most parents feel that way. That's the impression I get when you have your first child, that it's overwhelming that they're sending you home with this baby and saying, good luck, you know. But I think it's a totally different ball game where it's like, here's this new baby and here are your medical supplies, you know. Right. Make sure to give this every two hours round the clock. Wait, huh? How do I sleep? (laughs) 
<laughs> yep. No, that was our life. Ugh. For sure. Do you still struggle with, I know we talked about, you know, every now and again, you still get those kind of feelings of guilt, even though, you know, like there was nothing else you could have done to prevent him from being born early. Do you have any of those lingering feelings about maybe guilt or loss of things that you could have done differently or things that you may have missed because of your addiction? There are definitely things that I have missed out on due to my um, addiction. And that's hard for me. Like the examples that come to mind was um, I had a friend who she was a, she was my best friend in uh, junior high. And she reached out to me because she and her fiance wanted to have lunch with me. And I had told them, yeah, like, I'll get lunch with you. Well, the problem was, is that that day I started drinking at 9am or whatever time I got out of bed. Um, and so then by the time lunch came around, like I was extremely intoxicated and I didn't feel good. And I didn't want to go to lunch. So I canceled on them last minute. And, you know, I'm, I was never honest during my drinking days. Never told them, you know what, I'm really, really drunk. I'm an <laughs> yeah. alcoholic, so I'm not going to make it. Um, right. It was just, oh, I don't feel good, you know. Um, and fast forward, I have found out um, from another friend that their plan for that lunch was to ask me to be the maid of honor. Um, and I missed out on that. And so there's instances like that where it's like that sucks i i was too hungover when i was studying abroad in chile to go to pablo neruda's house i was puking and all that nastiness that comes with being hungover i missed out on that like so there's that stuff that yeah i know that i missed out on some really cool life experiences due to my drinking but the things that bother me more are just um or the things like putting people's lives at risk that bothers me more. I have regrets about how many times I've driven drunk. I have regrets about some of the crappy things I said while I was drunk. Um, just my really selfish, reckless behaviors that I exhibited like in the midst of my addiction, that's more what I have regrets about rather than the opportunities that I missed out on. That makes sense. And that's, I think, so powerful for people to hear too, you know, who are maybe thinking that they might have a problem and maybe now they're just thinking back on everything that they might have missed out on because of their addiction. Well, I want to end this off with something, This you know, it's a heavy, it's a heavy topic. And so I think it's important to leave off with something, um, that is positive and that people can take away. Um, and so I want to give you the opportunity to share with us, is there something that inspires you, something that you turn to, or maybe a song you listen to or something like that to make yourself feel better or kind of put you in a better mood? I actually really like uh, 6AM, which if you don't know who 6AM is, it's actually um, Tommy Lee from 
oh, where's my brain? Motley Crue. There we go. He was a heroin addict. And he's been sober for, clean and sober for quite a while. And he wrote a book and, called The Heroin Diaries. And it's a very powerful book. And he also formed his band, 6AM, and they wrote a whole bunch of songs pertaining to his addiction and that book. Anyway, there is a song on there called Accidents Can Happen. And I love that song. Um, I am contemplating getting the notes of it tattooed on me to remind myself that accidents can happen. But essentially, um, the chorus are, um, the chorus goes, and you know accidents can happen. It says, it's not your whole life. It's only one day. You haven't thrown everything away. And that's, it's true, I guess, is what I want to say, is it's true. And it's hard to realize that when you are in the midst of your addiction. Sometimes it does feel like, you know what, I've screwed everything up. I can never recover from this. But that's not true. I'm a testament to that. The people that I know that are in recovery, if you knew their stories, you'd be floored to ever know that they ever had an addiction with how wonderful they're doing now. It's just people can change. And that's why I love my job so much because I get to help people and I get to see that change and try to help them facilitate that change. Um, it, it'll be okay. I love that. And I think it's so amazing that you get to change people's lives every day and you get to be an inspiration to those who are in similar places. And so I think that's amazing. I think that's so great what you do. Um, I had the opportunity to intern with the California Innocence Project and and listen to people who were in, you know, different situations, but um, knowing how, the, how difficult that defending uh, people who have, you know, been kind of cast aside um, and how important it is that we have people who do that. So thank you so much for what you do every day. And thank you so much for being on the podcast. It's been great. And I really appreciate your time. No, no problem. Thank you for having me. And I just adore you so much and I feel so grateful to know you and have you in my life. Thanks, Joy. Thank you everyone so much for listening. And I just wanted to leave off this episode. I normally do like a pun or something kind of funny, but something uh, I came across a quote today and it really stuck with me. And I wanted to focus on that because I feel like the journey that Joy has gone through in her life, this fits so perfectly. The quote is, you can't change without resistance. And it really is so true. And then I know it's so cliche and that, you know, nothing worth worth it comes easy or whatever the cliche phrase is, but it's so true that you cannot change without resistance, without some sort of challenge. Those are the moments that really, truly change you. And so instead of thinking of something hard as difficult or something you have to overcome, welcome it as an opportunity, something that will change you for the better, something that you can embrace. So anyway, I hope everyone has a fantastic week.